Matthew 9, verse 9. So I made mention, I believe it was Sunday night as we, I might, it might have been last Sunday morning, as we have been going through Matthew 8 and then we stopped and we hit the catechism questions for the month and I'm always, I'm always nervous about throwing in those catechism questions because it seems to maybe break into the flow that we're going and wherever we're at. But it seems as if the Lord has just lined everything up in Matthew 8 and then the Psalms, Psalm, 5, uh, Psalm 4, Psalm 5, and Psalm 6, and the catechism questions of last week. And now into the, this next portion in Matthew 9, that, that God's just keeping, keeping, tra- uh, keeping uh, our train of thought steady and not giving us any break in, in what he's teaching us. And so we finished or two Sundays ago looking from the beginning of Matthew 9 through verse 8. And we saw that Jesus as the Son of Man has all authority and that is shown in his ability to forgive sin but also to um, cause a man to rise and walk. And so we see the authority of God through Jesus Christ who's declared to be the Son of Man. And now we get to see a little bit more this week in reference to uh, his authority. Uh, And not just his authority, but his ministry. And as we look at verse 9 through 13, uh, we see it uh, fold out in Jesus calling Matthew to follow him. And so the the three guideposts that we have in 9 through 13 look like this. Uh, A call. A correction. And an explanation. And that'll be our guidepost as we walk through 9 through 19. A call, a correction, and an explanation. And more than likely, we will only get through the first three this morning. And this evening, we'll come back and, Lord willing, look at the explanation. So let's read this section, and then I'll follow that with a prayer. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, that would be Jesus, those who, are will, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word and seek you and your son and his glorious work as redeemer, We pray that you would help us and guide us, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see uh, these wondrous things out of your word. And that we might, in understanding, live to glorify you and keep your word. And it's for Christ's sake we pray this. Amen. Alright, so let's just look look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, that's the, the, the house that he was at, 
he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. So Jesus uh, encounters Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. I know we've talked about tax collectors before in the past, but I want to make sure to highlight what it is to be a tax collector in this setting because it's a major it's a major significance for Matthew's story but it's also a major significance for the interaction Jesus is about to have with the Pharisees um, so a tax collector in those times rightfully had earned a bad reputation okay um, probably so today as well um, but for different reasons the tax collectors uh, that we encounter in the Gospels are Jewish. They are from Abraham. They are of the lineage of Abraham. Most of the time when we encounter them, they have um, gone the way of Rome. And they're, they're collecting tax from the Israelites, from the Jews, for the sake of the Roman Empire, for Caesar. And because of that, they're seen as traitors to their own people, to their kinsmen, to their brothers. Uh, not only are they seen as traitors because of this, and that's not only. Sometimes it's for um, the king of uh, um, what's his name? I can't think of his name. The king of Israel at the time, and not just for Rome, but for him, who's probably also working underneath the thumb of Rome. But in in the tax collecting occupation. There are many opportunities for greed, corruption, deception, because what happens was is not only when they do their job well are they not in trouble from whom for whomever they're collecting the tax for, but they get a they get a piece of the pie, right? So when money's involved, especially when however much money you bring in is how much money you get to take home, greed, deception, right, um, corruption tends to set in. So typically, as you see, uh, tax collectors in the Gospels, they're classified as sinners or with sinners throughout all the Gospel. Even Jesus, in multiple occasions, uses the illustration of a tax collector tax collector to portray a sinner. Okay, Matthew 18, Jesus says, when you get to the end of church discipline, if your brother will not repent of his sin and you've taken it to the church... Uh, treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector, someone who is far away from God, who does not know God. So even Jesus uses that reality of a tax collector in there, or then also with the uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, we know that Jesus uses it for the sake of the tax collector being identified as a sinner. If he wasn't, then that parable wouldn't make any sense. So even Jesus understands and uses uh, the reality of um, the reputation tax collectors have. So Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Holy One, approaches said, said sinner, right? He comes to him. He sees him at the tax booth. Imagine a toll booth, right? That's what it is. He's collecting money for a passage of some sort, more than likely. Um, so Jesus comes up to him, but it just... The reputation does not stop him, right? The reputation of being 
potentially greedy, corrupt, or deceptive, a traitor to, to the nation of Israel, does not keep him from approaching Matthew. It doesn't turn him away. Oh, there's a tax collector. Let's cross the road to the other side. We don't want to engage with that type of person. Um, it actually is the exact opposite. He goes to him. He does the exact, the exact opposite. And he says, come and follow me. So someone with such a bad reputation, someone seen as a sinner, many known to be filthy, greedy, deceptive traitors, and Jesus tells him, come be with me. And not just come be with me, live with me, learn with me, become like me, join him. Now, the way Jesus phrases his remark when he approaches Matthew, he says to him, Follow me, period. And I mean that grammatically, period. There's no question mark. It's not, follow me? Will you? Exactly. You took the word right out of my mouth. It is a command. It's an imperative command. He says, follow me. No question mark. And you know, you, you ask your kids something and... You know, if they got in trouble and they say, I hit my sister, and you say, Well, is that a question or a statement? There was no there was no there was no uncertainty in Jesus' uh, phraseology. It was a statement. There was no question at the end. But you also have to understand when we think about Matthew eight, did Jesus ask the leprosy that was in the leper? Did he did he did he ask the fever in Peter's mother? He didn't ask Legion, the 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 thousands of demons that were in this this man. He didn't ask him to come out and to go into the pigs. He commanded, right? That is uh, what Jesus is. That's who he is as the Son of Man. Daniel seven has been given all authority, dominion, and a kingdom. Right. And so Jesus doesn't go around asking and making requests, but he commands. And this is very much a continuation throughout the Gospels and even into the epistles. You do not see the gospel going out and proclaimed in the sake of asking someone a question. I got I was trying to think about it. and I was racking my mind and going through the Gospels. I don't know of one instance where the question of Jesus is asked to someone to follow him. It's always an imperative statement. And I think we as a church, we have to make sure that we cleanse ourselves of bad habits that we've probably inherited over the last oh, two centuries. right? Um, usually language... And language doesn't change instantly, but it sort of morphs over time. Like we don't – people don't just get away from speaking biblically in a single moment, but it sort of takes time to, to, to move away and transform language. Um, that's true in, in any case, not just uh, in studying the Bible or, or speaking the truth of the scripture. So you can go all the way back to when, – when, when we think about this idea of um, asking with the gospel proclamation, um, 
or as we might think of it today as making an invitation for someone to deny or, or to, to accept or deny, right? Um, we have to we have to kind of roll back the time almost two centuries to the second great awakening where the idea was we want to we want to create such an environment where we get people to have to make to move to this side or that side to say yes or no to Jesus. We want to make them feel like they have to say yes. And what they did in the second great awakening, and that doesn't mean that there wasn't a great revival in the second great awakening, but there was a movement of revivalism in the second great awakening that sort of pushed the church in a in a not so great direction of trying to um what's the word induce someone to make a decision to follow Jesus right and then rolling out of that you get uh we talked about Billy Graham this morning there in the in the early 1900s even you know Billy Sunday and, and that crowd all the way through the 40s, 50s, and 60s, these large crusades where it was giving invitations to Christ and people came in the hundreds, thousands, maybe even the millions. And they came, but they actually came and then they didn't know where to go after that. right? They, they came to Christ, but they never made it to church. But then there was a movement in the mid, well, the 70s and the 80s called the church, in the 90s, called the church growth movement, which actually rolled into the seeker-sensitive movement, where they saw all the people who would come to Christ in these stadiums, in these coliseums, and they think about, okay, how can we get that to happen here in the church? And so what do they do? They start watering down the command to believe and repent. They water down the command and just say, here's the invitation to come to Christ. right? But here's how we know... Here's how we know that the invitation to come to Christ doesn't exist, and that's because of Acts 17. Um, Look at Acts 17, verse 30. Now, when I say invitation, I mean in the sense of it's either yours to accept or deny. It really doesn't matter either way, because that's basically what an invitation is. But Acts 17, as Paul is speaking to uh, some really intelligent guys in Athens. And of course, they've got all their gods. But he goes to preach to them about, uh, we're going we're gonna to be at, at verse 30. Paul goes to preach to them about the one true God. And he says to them, the time of, arrogant, or the time of ignorance God overlooked. This is Acts 17, verse 30. The times of, of, of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All right, there, that was it, plain as day. He commands everywhere to repent. But just so we make sure that we understand that it is a command and can't just be this invitation that you can have or not. Because he has fixed, verse 31, a day of which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When you invite someone to a party, you're not going to con- you're, well, you don't have the right to condemn them or judge them whether or not they come. The only way judgment and condemnation comes is if the gospel proclamation comes as a command from God. 
right? No judgment comes from an invitation. And so we have to understand that, that as Jesus goes to Matthew, he goes to him and commands him to follow him, right? And it, we're not meaning that he goes up and he slams his hand on the on the ta- on his tax table and I command. No, he just said, "Follow me. Let's go." Is what it was. It wasn't. You want to come with me? It was. Let's go. Right. And what do we know that Matthew did? If you read Luke's account, it says Matthew leaving everything, rose and followed him. Okay. So what did? How did Matthew respond to the command? Well, obedience. The, the, the only response, the only two options to the command of the, uh, to follow Jesus is either obedience or disobedience. And what that looks like is to trust and believe or disbelieve. And see, we, we, try to, we try to separate obedience and faith. But without one, there is no other. Right? And, and Paul says, Paul says, he writes uh, to the Romans. I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but let me read you what Paul says to the church at Rome in chapter 1. We're right there, actually, because we were in Acts. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, verse 1, called to be an apostle. So what's an apostle? Apostle is uh, one sent by someone. Well, who's he sent? He's sent by Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God. So there's, there's the good news. He's set apart for the gospel as a messenger sent by Christ. Uh, verse 2, which he promised beforehand, God, that is, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was a descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. So, yeah, there we have it. Obedience of faith, right? And for what sake or for whose sake? For the name of Jesus Christ to be spread among the nations. That goes back to that idea that we talked about in Psalm 6 last Sunday. That the spreading of the gospel is to bring about the salvation of people. But what ultimately is it doing? It's spreading the glory of Jesus Christ throughout all the nations. Obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ among all the nations. Um, Here's another way of thinking about it as far as the gospel proclamation um, not being this something we're trying to invite or entice people to, right? In the sense of this is better than what you're after. I heard a, I heard a pastor say our gospel proclamation um, isn't campaigning to get Jesus elected. We're not, we're not going door to door to say, hey, vote for Jesus, He's already been elected. You need to be on his side. Right? That's the gospel proclamation. We're not trying, we're not trying to convince people that you Jesus is so good you need you need to vote for him. No, he's so good you better join him. See what I'm saying? And that's why Matthew obeyed and he left everything and he rose and he followed him. He obeyed Jesus by faith.
Now, I want to take a step back and think, not that we weren't thinking doctrinally about this, about the call of God, but maybe a little bit further. Now, this is the first, uh, this is the first effect of the Bible questions basket. And so I hope, I hope most of the time to address any topics or discussions or doctrine that you've had in the basket on its own. But also the thing about it is, is that if it's biblical doctrine, it's in the text for a reason. It's there to inform us and help us. And so when we can see it and, and understand it in the scriptures as we go through it, it's very helpful. And so I want to take, step, take a step back and think about the effective power of the call of God. Now we just saw it with Matthew, the effectiveness of Jesus calling Matthew. Um, think about this. As Jesus assembles his 12, right, his main 12, not one that we, there, we'd not see one rejection of Jesus when it comes to him gathering his 12. Now think about uh, what, make sure you hear what I'm saying. Now, there were people who rejected him and left him. But when we're speaking of the twelve, we don't know of anyone that Jesus was like, Hey, come follow me. I want you to be my disciple. And they're like, nah. Right? We know that for certainty because of what the scriptures tell us. Jesus would have his twelve, even the one who would betray him. The effective power of the call of God means that Matthew, at this time, and I'm telling you, we're getting in, we're getting, and I'll tell you how we're, why we're getting here. This is touching on, the call of God is touching on what we would, how we would get to the idea of um, the predetermining call of God, or the predestination of a saint, or the election of a saint. Underneath that is, this, is the effective power of of the call of God through Jesus Christ. So Matthew Matthew was as incapable of disobeying Jesus as the wind and the waves and that fever in Matthew 8 were incapable. Let me say that again. Matthew was as incapable because of the effective power of the call of God than even the wind and the waves back in Matthew 8 when Jesus commanded them to cease. Now you're thinking, prove it. Well, I want to show you two passages out of John when we're thinking about the effectiveness of the call of God, especially in the con- in consideration of Matthew. Go to John 17. So first one's in John 17 and the second one's in John 15. So there's two reasons why Jesus is effective in his calling of disciples. John 17, verse 6. Now we could read the whole chapter and, and get more of this, but we're just going to, for the sake of time, read two verses. John 17, verse 6. Jesus is praying to God the Father, okay? John 17, verse 6. I'm going to make sure everybody's there before I start reading. I hear pages. I, Jesus, have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So the, the first reason why Matthew was as incapable of disobeying the call of Jesus was because that Matthew was given to Jesus by the Father. 
first thing, okay? Matthew was given to Jesus by the Father. If you're familiar with John 17, you understand that the first half of Jesus' prayer is specifically talking about the 11, okay? The 11 disciples. And he he speaks about the one who would uh, betray him, the son of destruction. Uh, But that's for another day. So the first reason why Matthew was incapable of disobeying Jesus because of the effective power of Jesus' call was because the Father had given Matthew to Jesus. The second one is in Matthew 15, a couple pages to the left, or a page or two to the left. Verse 16. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. So the second reason Matthew was incapable of disobeying Jesus because of the effective power of his call was because Matthew was chosen by the Son. Given by the Father and chosen by the Son. Now, how did that unfold? Like, how does that, like, that sounds like some hoodoo voodoo. It is the power of the Word of Christ. It's the power of the Word of Christ revealing God and Himself, the Christ, to Matthew. Now, how do we know this? Well, we're, well number one, let's, since we're halfway to Romans, let's look at Romans 10, a verse you all familiar with. I think we even quoted it this morning in Sunday school offhand. Start at verse 15, Romans 10, verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they do not all obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So not all believe. We get that. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What what Matthew hear? The word. He heard the word of Christ when Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. Now, if you go back to Matthew on your way back to 9, stop at chapter 11. Again, Matthew 11 helps us to understand the effectiveness of the power of God's call through Christ. Look at verse 27 in chapter 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son to whom anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. So here's what we have to understand. Matthew was given to Jesus by the Father. Matthew was chosen by the Son. Matthew uh, uh, knew the Son and the Father because the Son chose to reveal. And he did that in his calling of Matthew. Matthew 
was predestined by the will of God to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay? But in our minds, we immediately want to object. We want to object, but what did not Matthew not have the ability, the free will, to say no? So we ask the question, cannot or God or we make the statement, God cannot interfere with man's choices, with man's will. But let me ask you this. Did God violate Paul's will on the road to not Emmaus, Damascus? What was Paul's will as he walked down the road to Damascus? To kill Christians. What was God's will for Paul? Yeah. So I ask you, did God violate Paul's will? God's will for Paul was not to arrest Christians, but to become a Christian. Is man free to do whatever he pleases? Or is God free to do whatever he pleases? See, that's something we have to think about and consider. And if you carefully and honestly study the scriptures, they reveal to you that God thwarts man's will. Man does not thwart God's will. The second thing, the matter is actually not about our freedom in our will. Um, because God has created us to make choices. But the question is, is are our decisions and our will good and righteous? So it's not whether or not we make decisions. It's are our decisions good in the sight of God? Right? That is a whole other story. But that is very much made clear in the scriptures that God has given all mankind the ability to make choices. Paul or um, left to his own. Matthew would have said, give me your taxes. Right? Left to his own, he would have done his job and disobeyed Jesus. Um, the thing you and I need to be concerned about is that our choices are either righteous or evil in the sight of God. And the Bible is clear, number three, that God is in control of all things. He's sovereign. But man will also be held responsible for all his decisions. Are you still in Matthew 11? Go back, to, go back to verse 27. I want you to understand that Jesus teaches that no one will know the Son except the Father. Or no one will know the Father and the Son except whom the Son chooses. But then God will hold responsible for all who do not come to him. Let's read verse 27 again. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the, the Son chooses to reveal. Now verse 28, he gives a command. Come to me. That is a command. All who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he makes another command. Take my yoke upon you. Gives another command. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11 illustrates to us the very, the very reality that God is in control. And at the exact same time, man will be held responsible for every decision he ever makes. Our statement of faith says it very beautifully. 
in ways I could never say. It says that mankind is bent away from God. It says, quote, positively inclined to evil. Positively inclined to evil. It takes the work of the triune God to regenerate, a work to, uh, to work faith and repentance um, all through what is called the eternal purpose of God. And yet it's worked in a way that is perfectly consistent, and I quote our statement of faith, perfectly consistent with the free agency of of man, the free will of man, have you? And I was just like, okay, but how can that be? Because that's impossible. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you believe that God created the world out of nothing? That's impossible. Did you hear me? God created the world out of nothing. That's not possible, right? For God it is. So if God is sovereign over all things, and yet man will be responsible for every act and decision and thought he ever makes, how is that possible? He created everything out of nothing. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. What did Jesus tell the disciples when they asked him, who then can be saved? With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Right? So why give any attention to these to these sort of difficult doctrines? Well, number one, um, you asked. <laughs> number, number two, because God gives attention to them. Okay, there... Um, He speaks to them. Jesus speaks to them. Paul gives attention to them all throughout the the scriptures. Um, And the third is there is a reason the Lord, Jesus, and Paul give attention to them in their scriptures. Not to learn it, to debate it, to argue it, but there are two great reasons why such difficult doctrine are given to us. Number one, to humble the sinner in order to exalt the triune God, to humble the sinner in order to exalt the triune God. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We, remember, we're, we're, we're trying to understand how Jesus could be so effective in his calling of his disciples. And we've, we've, we've read that the Father gives them to him and that he chooses them. Well, look at verse 26 of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling. Now notice the the personal aspect of that. Your calling. He's he's speaking to the, the, the Christians at Corinth. Consider your calling, brothers, not not the the gospel invitation, but Christ calling you. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You know what that sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 7 when Jesus, when God explains to Israel 
why he chose them. Not because they were big or mighty or a great nation. Right? Verse 29. Again, so we understand that such doctrine of the effective calling of God is for Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of who? Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why do you think Matthew wrote his gospel? He's boasting in the Lord. So the first reason why we would even give attention, why God would give attention to such difficult doctrine is, number one, to exalt, I mean, sorry, to humble the sinner in order that we might exalt God. Do you understand what that means? To put us on our face. Because when God puts us on our face, where is he in, re- in, in, in respect to us? He's exalted above us. He's exalted above us. So that no man might boast in the presence of God. And number two, and this is probably the most reason, the the biggest reason why Paul would ever write about um, the effectiveness of the calling of Christ. Why he would ever write anything about predestination. And that's to give those who are in Christ eternal assurance and hope. To give the sinner eternal assurance and hope. We all know Romans 8.28, right? All things work together for good for those who love God. Did I finish it? No. To those who are called according to his purpose. Now let's think about that. Let's just look at it. Go to the left. A few pages. Romans 8.28. Also understand that the context of Romans 8.28 is that you are following Christ to the point that you are putting to death sin in your own body, and not only that, you're suffering for the sake of Christ. And so, Christian, you're fighting your own sin and your flesh for the sake of holiness. You're suffering for the sake of Christ. And 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 Paul's wanting to remind you that it's not it's not any good. But guess what? That that which you're going to receive, the glory that's coming, is going to be greater than this. But he says in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are uh, the called, depending on what translation you're reading, the called according to his purpose. Now, how does that give you assurance and hope? Number one, no matter what the situation, you understand as the called, being called by God, being a son or daughter of God, that there's nothing outside of this world and the providence of God that is not working towards you becoming more like Christ, which is ultimately where he goes in verse uh, 29. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And while we're at it, in affirming 
Paul's preaching here, teaching. We've seen it in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2. Verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by God, because God chose you as a firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He what? He called you through what? Our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. You want hope and assurance. Understand that for those who are called, all things work together for good, and ultimately nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That's why Paul writes of such difficult teachings, is for the sake of our hope and assurance in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to stop there. But I want us to understand, I didn't, I I didn't plan on going that long on that first point. But what we have to understand back again in what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, we didn't even read that one. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what for? What for? That we might not boast in His presence, but we who boast, boast in the Lord. Matthew obeyed God because God had chosen him and given him to His Son. And Jesus set His sight on Matthew and would have him not just to follow Him on this earth, but for all eternity. And the effective power of God's call in Matthew's life and in ours is unbreakable. It's bound by what? The power and nature of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And praise be to God for that very thing. Let me pray. Father, I give thanks to you as we've sat in our lives doing our deeds as Matthew was that you have come to us and called us you have revealed yourself and made yourself known to us and God and in your infinite power and wisdom you have made us sons and daughters Adopted into the family. And so, Lord Jesus, be glorified in your work in us. Exalt yourself as we uh, obey your calling and be glorified and receive glory and honor as we give you all your due. It's for your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's sing one hymn, The Love of God, number 91. Let's stand and sing.